we're continuing our conversation to make sure that you don't lose all your assets. Join me for part two with Doug Lodmel, the nation's foremost asset protection attorney. Investing Secrets with Kevin Attride. Doug, for those who haven't heard you talk about the Bridge Trust before, can you go in just a little detail for for that? Sure. Yeah. And this kind of really just um, begs a, a little bit of a, a history of asset protection. Um, so asset protection with a trust really first started in 1984. A little country called the Cook Islands said, hey, what if we draft a statute specifically allowing people to put their assets in and write their own spendthrift provisions, which would protect from creditors. It would be like my son giving you the $20 and then saying, hey, here's $20. Would you buy me lunch, you know, buy me ice cream? But if my buddy Jimmy comes over, I owe him 10 bucks. Tell him, tell him you can't give it to him. Right? So my own son is coming to you to protect his money from his own creditor. That's effectively what an asset protection trust allows is for you to put your own money in trust for yourself and tell your own creditors, sorry, I don't have it. You can't reach it. Um, And this was pretty revolutionary. And this really only existed offshore in the beginning. Um, And and many of the attorneys at the time and, and, and commentators were like, that can't be possible. We can't do that. That's never going to work. Well, lo and behold, it did work. It worked really well. And in fact, it worked so well that by 1998, Alaska said, hey, why are we sending all this business offshore? Let's just do it here. And so they passed a statute. And then not to be left behind, Nevada and Delaware and Wyoming said, hey, we can do it too. And so they passed a statute. And so now we actually have 19 states in the U.S. that have some type of domestic asset protection trust statute in place attempting to model what the foreign trust statutes do, like the Cook Islands. So here's the good, the bad, and the ugly of all that. The foreign trust statutes are by far the most protective because they are statutorily prohibited from recognizing any other jurisdictions, court orders, or judicial proceedings, including the United States. So so if you have a Cook Islands trust and some creditor comes after it with a, a, a order from the Supreme Court of the United States, that order is, is literally worth zero in the Cook Islands. It, it just goes in the trash. You have to start your case from scratch. You have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. You're not going to get a free attorney because they don't allow contingent fees down there. And you have to prove your case beyond a reasonable doubt, which is so difficult. The net effect is that you're never really going to get through that system and get get a Cook Islands court to give you an order to, to reach the assets. Um, so the benefit of offshore is the incredibly high level of protection. The cost of that is that the IRS has a greater compliance burden for foreign trusts. You have more expense because you have a foreign trustee in place. You have um, uh, additional requirements for 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 maintenance, and so maintaining a foreign trust can cost. You should budget around ten thousand dollars a year just to keep it maintained. So, what about the domestic trusts? Well, they're less um, expensive. There's more companies that do them. There's more attorneys that are comfortable doing them, so the cost can be lower. Um, they don't have the foreign compliance because they're not foreign trusts. However, they still have trust companies. They still have loss of control because those trust companies are in control. Um, and so it's less expensive and a little bit easier to maintain. But then we have the problem of, of the fact that the case law has not been very good around the domestic trusts because they're still in the U.S. 
they still are subject to the U.S. courts. And if you look at the case law, which you can actually find on my website, um, it, it, it's, it's pretty, um, it's pretty depressing when it comes to uh, domestic asset protection trusts. Um, so easier to use, less expensive, but don't work or really expensive, more difficult to use and work really well. There's a third option, and that is the bridge trust. And really, the bridge trust is a hybrid between a foreign and domestic trust. It's drafted as a foreign trust. It's registered in an offshore jurisdiction, so it's really got the roots and the base of a foreign asset protection trust. But then, for the purposes of IRS compliance, it meets the two-part test under the Internal Revenue Code to be treated as a domestic trust. And so what you have is a foreign trust treated like a domestic trust for tax purposes. Client can be their own trustee. It, it's very simple. It's disregarded for tax purposes. Um, you don't have to file the foreign compliance. It's easy to maintain. It has a fixed cost to maintain each year. Um, and yet, if you ever have a real problem, we can drop the U.S. side, cross the bridge, and now we're just into the foreign trust. So um, – I will say for, for 96 or 7% of my clients, the bridge trust is, is the right fit because it gets the protection they need with the simplicity and, and, and cost efficiency that my clients really want. Doug, that's, that's really helpful. And, and ultimately, just to summarize, so the case law is saying the Cook Islands is so secure that it really aren't U.S. judgments, uh, that really are enabling creditors to take, take your money. However, the, the state-based domestic trusts—it's um, sort of a crapshoot, or often, often the client is is still losing to the creditors. Well, it's it's uh, I mean, I wouldn't call them without value, but it's a crapshoot if you get into a real shootout at the end. Um, and again, for me, there's a better option. I mean, the bridge trust actually is easier to manage for the client than a domestic asset protection trust because the client can be the trustee of their own bridge trust. Whereas in a domestic asset protection trust, that would never be the case. So you can actually, you can actually bend the rules more in favor of the client with the bridge trust because you know you have the backup of the offshore protection. Whereas with a domestic trust, you're going to have to be exceedingly strict if you're going to try to make it work. And so, um, so for me, the bridge trust—it's it's either a bridge trust or an offshore trust. I personally don't use any pure domestic asset protection trusts. I, I it's, you know, it's like using a dial-up modem. It, it's not that it doesn't work a little bit, but why would you, right? <laughs> the wealthiest Americans utilize private banking. I recommend the experts at Living Wealth when you're ready to implement this strategy. So, so you mentioned the one to two million dollar threshold. Can you go into a bit of what are risky assets versus safe assets? Because, you know, if you, if you're holding certain assets, you're not really, uh, you, you mentioned, you know, equity in your own home and the homestead exemption. So you're not really categorizing that equity in that one to $2 million. So can you kind of separate what's in one versus the other? Yeah. So, well, there's, there's two different things, right? So there's already protected assets in some form, either they're exempt, like the homestead exemption. Um, or, or the qualified plans, in which case they're already protected because they're under the exempt. Um, and then there's unprotected assets, and that's what we use to add up that kind of one to two million before we start looking at the bridge trust. Then we have a whole nother class of distinction, which is safe assets versus risky assets, which you mentioned. So in our book, a safe asset is an asset that can't create liability on its own. So a safe asset would be cash because Cash doesn't create any liability. It's just cash. Stocks, bonds, you know, 
a syndication um, investment that you made. These are already securitized. They're already in a form where they're just down to kind of paper assets, right, financial assets. Um, I mean, unless somebody slips on your $20 bill and then sues you because of the $20 bill was yours, I mean, that would be, you know, and I I don't think that's really um, happening. So those assets can be held together because you're not risking if, if, if one safe asset, you know, blows up, now you're going to lose them all. Risky assets, on the other hand, are assets which the asset itself may create the liability. The number one is the one we already talked about, which is your car. That is the number one risky asset that you have. That's the riskiest thing you do in your life, almost certainly. And so that is something we need to be very careful. If we put the car in the same LLC that we put your million-dollar bank account and the, you get in a car accident, they're going to sue who? The driver and the owner. Well, who's the owner? The LLC. Well, what else does the LLC own? Oh, a million dollars. Bingo. Lottery. So we will always want to segregate risky assets from safe assets and risky assets from other risky assets. So what else is a risky asset? Real estate. Real estate is clearly a risky asset. And I'll give you an example. Um, I had a guy call me from California. He had three pieces of property in an LLC. Each property had a million dollars of equity. One of the pieces of property had a $5 million mold claim on it. He only had a million dollars of insurance. So he was looking at $4 million of excess liability. But the challenge for him was that he had these other two properties in the same LLC with the property with the mold. Now they were all available for the creditor. So what he needed to do was have three LLCs, one for each million-dollar piece of property, and that way the mold property could still go down but not take the other two properties with it. And so so we are always looking at separating the risky from the safe and then the risky from the other risky in order to minimize the amount we're ever really exposing in one basket. And and what are some other risky – so I'm assuming – business or dependent on the type of business that can be risky as well. Sure. Businesses are risky because you have employees, you have customers, um, you know, certainly any kind of physical thing, a car, an airplane, a boat, um, jet skis and snowmobiles. I mean, honestly, my opinion is you should, you should, you should almost not own them. They're so ridiculously risky. I mean, motorcycles they're I mean, they're just like a massive risk. Um, and so anything with a key, a lock, a door, a motor, a parachute, a, a propeller, any of those things, all risky, right? Um, anything with a customer, anything with an employee, risky. Um, so a, a piece of, of property, not it, a little bit risky, but not inherently mega risky, right? Because it's just a piece of property. Um, whereas, you know, a jet ski with a little motor and a, and a Yahoo driving it that might have had six beers, super risky, you know? So, um, so you know, we're always trying to, to balance those risk and values and get things in the right spot. And yet still get them all together in that holding company, which is then connected to the bridge trust. Go into a little bit more of the safe. So, uh, 
physical gold and silver outside of an IRA, um, life insurance policies, uh, are, are those all safe as well? Yeah, safe. You're not going to trip on the gold bar and sue the gold bar. Um, your, your, your life insurance is just a financial asset. It's safe. Any kind of investment that's already like a, a share of Apple stock is safe. You're not going to ever get called by Apple and go, hey, we got sued. We send us a check. Um, you can lose your value in your stock because Apple could go under, but you're never going to get called for a liability, right? So so assets where your liability has already been stopped and all you're holding is the asset value of it. So mostly those are financial type assets. When the dollar isn't buying what it used to, I recommend McIlvaney ICA for your gold and silver IRA or private collection to hold value for decades. Now, there's a lot of question around how many properties should you own in an LLC. Can you demystify that for us? Sure. Well, okay, so we already have the, the guy with $3 million in one LLC, and we already decided that was too much, right? So what's not too much? Um, for me, it's it's somewhere between two hundred and fifty and and a half a million dollars worth of value would be kind of the bottom end per LLC. Um, so if you have three real rental houses and they each have $50,000 worth of equity, I'd, I'd be comfortable with all three of them in a single LLC, especially if they're in the same state and you're managing them together. Um, because, you know, they're not, there's just not that much there that you're, you're exposing. And that, and that assumes you have good insurance on them where the insurance is taking care of part of it. Yeah. And, and yeah, this assumes you do have good insurance and hopefully the umbrella policy that's going to cover 99% of all those inside type liabilities, the things that happen on the property, et cetera. Um, it could go from there. It really becomes then very much about particular client's circumstance and situation, as well as tolerance, risk tolerance. Um, I have one case where, I mean, just from a practical standpoint, we had to make each LLC about $2.5 million of value, um, and, and we still had 50 LLCs. So that that's just happened to be his case, and the way the properties were were arranged, that that was the right number. Um, that was obviously the the exception. I would say most LLCs come in between half a million and a million dollars of value before we start saying, okay, time to make another one, make the next one. Well, and that that begs the question you can find on the Internet lots of information about the series LLCs. You can have one LLC and have 50 um, compartments. Uh, Is is that um, a fool's errand or is there something to that? So it's a really good question, Kevin. So the story I told you about the California guy – Actually, he didn't have three properties in one LLC. He had three properties in a series LLC. But here's the problem. California doesn't have a series LLC statute. And so he thought he had already segregated the properties because he used a Wyoming series LLC. And so he thought he was being clever. Well, when he had the mold claim, he went to his attorney and his attorney promptly informed him that California doesn't recognize the series. So for California, where the liability occurred and where the court was going to be hearing the case, it was just one LLC. So the rule on series LLCs is that you can use them only in states which have adopted the statute. So don't try to import a series LLC to a state that doesn't have a series LLC legislation. But in a state that does, I have no problem with a series LLC. So let's say you're in a car accident in California, but you have properties in a state that are supportive of the series. Is that generally fine? Yeah, because it's they have to go to that state to, to, to treat those LLCs. They would look at that state law. Um, but if you had a California property and you tried to use – Nevada series LLC, that's where the problem. Tell us, you know, 
what really makes a good asset protection firm? What should someone look for to really find not just the right mix of the relationship with the knowledge, but you know, help us to understand that secret sauce of um, who should someone be looking for to really protect them to the nth degree? It's kind of like cooking. There's not a wrong, well, there's some wrong things to do, but assuming you're a basically competent chef in the kitchen, there are, there are different styles. Um, and so I think it's important, one, that you really are only looking at competent chefs, right? So attorneys that really do practice in the area of asset protection and really do have significant experience and can really point to, you know, their clients and show you that they're talking about and, and that they do this work, right? So I think that's, there, there are definitely a, a lot of attorneys in the country that are now considering this themselves asset protection attorneys. Um, and from there, you get into experience and then style. And the style part is very important because when we get to the very highest level of asset protection attorneys um, that do have the 20 plus years of experience, at that point, it very much comes down to style because there are some of my colleagues who I'm re- I respect a great deal that will only use an offshore trust. That's just their model. They just they don't want anything between that protection. And so they and, and they kind of tell their clients, yeah, you're just going to have to to bite the bullet and pay for it because this is the best possible structure. Um, I, there are others that are really into the domestic trust. They really believe in a certain jurisdiction and they've kind of built their whole infrastructure around that and they might have even started trust companies that they are behind and that they feel confident in. Um, and so for me, my style is very much about using the strongest possible protection on the backside if it's ever needed, having it available, but then simplifying so that on the front end, it's actually very simple and easy to use and you keep direct control of things. If you don't know where to start investing in real estate, I recommend Norada Real Estate Investments. Their counselors are impactful. And so, you know, I always advise clients, take your time, interview more than one attorney and see whose style fits your style. And I think, you know, I try to give a lot of information online, a lot of videos. I hope that my style comes through in that. So when people are looking, you know, if I'm a good fit, they usually can self-identify. But there are other very good attorneys in this country and more coming every day. It's becoming a practice area that is actually becoming very, very um, popular now because finally – Attorneys and certainly clients have realized that asset protection is not a fringe thing that nobody knows about anymore. It is a core part of your financial planning. If you are are with an attorney and they haven't brought it up, they're probably not the ones, right? Because every attorney should be bringing it up to you and saying, hey, let's talk about your asset protection. I know you only have $250,000 right now, but I want you to know it's not protected, you don't have a homestead in your state and, and, you know, I want you to know that it's exposed. And if you want to do something about it, here are your options. Um, my philosophy is let the client decide if, if they want to do something. I have many clients. I have one guy. Um, I'm not even kidding you. He had been investing in real estate for the past 60 years. He had $90 million worth of California real estate. Every single property was in his own name. Every single one. Because, you know, 60 years ago, no one told him different, and he never changed the way he did it. And so when we told him what was going to be required, the amount of transfers, the number of LLCs, he he said, well, okay, you know what? I'm not going to do it. 
I, I, I value my simplicity. I've, I've survived this far. I'm just going to take the risk. I can't imagine going through the, 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 the brain damage it would take to get everything the way you're – and I said, hey, I get it. It's totally reasonable because you have to decide what makes sense. The better approach, of course, is to, to in the beginning of your wealth building, to try to get this advice. And if he had someone had told it even to him 20 years ago, he could have at least gotten the last 20 years right, you know? <laughs> so, um, so my advice is educate yourself, you know, try to get as much information as possible and find someone who's really experienced and knowledgeable and really does this, but also who has a style that fits your style. And Doug, showing your expertise, you even have a book. Yeah, tell us more about your book. So I wrote a book a long time ago. It is a really old book. Um, and, you know, I got the opportunity to, to, to clerk with Jack Weinstein. Jack Weinstein was the Eastern District of New York Federal District Court judge. He wrote the book on evidence, Weinstein on evidence. It's, you know, seven-volume thing on law students know about. Um, and he was an amazing judge with, with just years and years of experience. Um, and sitting in his chambers and helping him was eye-opening to me because it, 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 it gave me an insight into the legal system in a different way. Um, and really how much power the judges have to really do what they want. They're, they're really almost unfettered control. Um, and someone like him, um, it was amazing because you trusted that level of, of control that he had because he was just that kind of person. The problem is that not every judge is him. Many of them are, are appointed or elected um, and may or may not even have the experience necessary to fill the role. Um, certainly many of them have conf- conflicts of interest and, and are, are, are tainted in a, in a way or they're just um, – and so unfortunately our legal system was built for judges like Jack Weinstein that had a, a degree of ethics that I can hardly describe how high it was. And yet it's actually being run with a lot of self-interested people out there. And so judges, the net effect is judges have an unbelievable amount of authority and power to really kind of do whatever they want. Attorneys have then taken this and said, how do we make as much money as possible? And the answer is, well, we have to have as much dispute as we possibly can which means as many lawsuits as we can because that's how we make our churn. That's our, that's our vig on this thing is we got to get people fighting. Um, and so over the past 60 years, you know, the legal industry has, has dismantled the protections that the founding fathers really put into our constitution to, to deter lawsuits. I mean, we were never allowed to have a charge a contingent fee as an attorney. Um, you could get be disbarred for, for ambulance chasing and unethical practices, which today are now considered absolutely normal. Um, and so, you know, we've just dismantled our system. And so what I find now is that it's not difficult at all to use the legal system to just straight up extort money. So, um, I had a client just call me the other day. He, he had a dispute. He got sued and, um, and, and he ended up settling. For an amount of money that was exactly the amount of money that it didn't make sense to fight because it was, it was just a little bit more than the first draft of the, the answer was going to cost him. And so attorneys have figured this out and they just know that it's, it's cheaper to settle even a frivolous, bogus, completely BS lawsuit than it is to fight it. 
Um, and so it, it, in effect, has created a, a ripe environment for legal extortion. And so the book is called The Lawsuit Lottery, and that's effectively what I'm saying, is that lawsuits have become kind of a lottery system. And, and there are serial um, abusers of this, people who get hired and get into partnerships and businesses or, or even accidents on purpose simply to abuse the legal system. Um, the fact that it's so easily abusable is our fault. As, 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 as lawyers and as keepers of the system, we have failed. And so, from my perspective as an asset protection attorney, I'm, I'm just trying to create a little balance back into the system. Um, I've said before, you know, asset protection really shouldn't be allowed. We shouldn't be allowed to opt out of our legal system. We should all have to play by the same rules. But, you know, uh, every, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So the action is, is that we have, we have corrupted our legal system and the equal and opposite reaction is that we've learned how to opt out of the system, which is asset protection. So, um, I hope I live to see the day that asset protection is not necessary and our legal system comes back into balance. But that's probably the same time that our educational, political, financial systems all come back into balance, which I may or may not be alive for. Yeah, I'm not necessarily hopeful that that's going to be anytime soon. But for those who want to opt out, for those who want to protect their assets, how do they get a hold of you? Um, you know, the best way is really just to go to the website and, and look look up, um, you know, the, uh, the which is lodmel.com, my last name. And, um, you know, just, just see what's on there. You can absolutely email um, my office just at support at lodmel.com. And my assistant's name is Iman, I-M-A-N. And just say, hey, I heard Doug on Kevin's show, and I'd love to, to have a chat. I'm happy to have a chat. Um, if you want to just email in and say, hey, can you send me some resources? We do have some very good resources we're happy to send you and um, and help you. For example, if you're in real estate or have real estate background, we have a, we have a good series on, on the key concepts of how to protect real estate. So you can feel free to ask for that directly. Doug highlighted so many amazing secrets that the average investor just doesn't know in how to protect assets. And if you want some of the deep secrets on how the wealthy are protecting their assets and growing their riches faster than the average investor, I want you to download my free guide below. Take action because I want you to experience financial freedom. The information contained in this episode are opinions not to be used as individual guidance. As always, consult your own financial team for your investment decisions.